Turn in your copy of the scriptures or scroll in your Bible app to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11. Ecclesiastes, chapter 11. And today we are going to be looking at the first six verses of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11. If you are physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word? Follow along silently as I read aloud from Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. This is what the word of God says. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north... In the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that or whether both alike will be good. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Three illustrations, here we go. Illustration number one. I'm standing at my home with somebody and they're about to leave and they say, hey, how do you get to Kroger? And I say, okay, well, you make a right out of my driveway and you go to the first stop sign and you make a right at that stop sign. You go up the hill till you hit the next stop sign, and then you make a left. From there, the road will curve around to the right. You go to the second stop sign, and you make a left. That road will curve to the right, and you go to the next stop sign, and you make a left. Go through the next traffic light, provided it's green, and then go to the next stop sign, and you make a left, and you will be in the Kroger parking lot. They say, okay, great. They leave my home. I get a text the next morning from this person, and they said, Pete, you did me wrong. And so I'm the kind of guy who calls people back when they text sometimes. I know that's kind of like a party foul, but it's just way quicker if I do that. And so I will do that. And so I probably would do that. And I call them back and I'm like, well, what do you mean? What happened? And he says, I went home this morning. I I woke up. I followed all of your instructions and I got so lost. I didn't get anywhere near Kroger. In fact, I needed directions to know how to get back home. To which I would respond, I was giving you directions to Kroger from my home. They're not universally applicable. They work from my home. I didn't intend for them to work from yours. Illustration number two. A secular evolutionist and a biblical creationist look at the same fossil. Imagine them both standing there and watching as it is brought to the surface of the earth at a dig site. And the question is posed to these two archaeologists, how old do you think this fossil is? The secular evolutionist looks at it and says, based on the depth from which it was retrieved, it certainly was down there for a very, very, very long period of time. In fact, when I analyze this fossil and consider the depth at which it was found, the fossil is probably millions of years old. It could not have gone down there just in a flash like that. It takes millions and millions of years for an animal to die and to go into the earth and be buried under the earth and continuing to go down. 
Well, the biblical creationist looks at it and says, well, based on what I know from the word of God, I know the Bible tells me that creator God created things with the appearance of age. For example, Adam and Eve were not created as infants. God didn't create trees as saplings. And based upon what I know happened to the world when God judged it with a catastrophic flood, I actually don't think this fossil reached its depth over millions of years, but rather suddenly buried deep in the earth under an enormous amount of rocks and dirt and layers of earth as a result of the effects that a global catastrophic God-sent flood would have on that which was living at the time. Based on the biblical record of history and what I know from God's word tells us about time and history, I think this fossil is thousands of years old. Illustration number three. When you say the word football to just about anyone in America, they think of a hundred yards of gridiron and tackling and interceptions and completions and rushes and drives and punting and cold weather and Super Bowl parties and small town USA Friday night lights and college rivalries and, and the like. Travel outside of America to just about any other country on God's green earth. And when you say the word football, people think of a running clock and goals and club rivalries and yellow cards and red cards and corner kicks and penalty shots and all that jazz. Because when you say football, just about anywhere outside of America, people picture what? Soccer. Now, these are three very different illustrations, but they all have a common bottom line, and that's why I bring them up to you today. And the bottom line is this, perspective matters. Perspective matters. Your starting point matters. Everyone has a worldview, a lens through which they interpret life and what happens to them and what they read on the news and see on TV and see on the internet. Perspective matters. And so even before we go on, what about you? Where do you stand to look at the world? What is it that gives you your perspective on life? For Christians, the Bible is the primary means God uses to radically change our perspective as we look at the world in which we live. And the book of Ecclesiastes teaches you to think about your life from the perspective of death. To think about your life from the perspective of death. As one author put it, Ecclesiastes urges us to, quote, think about life under the sun from the perspective of life above the sun. Live in light of eternity. In fact, the subtitle of this sermon series that's written at the top of your, yes, at the top of your bulletin says living in light of the end. We talk a lot about the fact that this world is not our home, that our citizenship is in heaven from Philippians chapter 3, that all things to which Christians can wholeheartedly say yes and amen to on a Sunday when they hear it from a pulpit. However, what if Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday rolls around and you say, wait, what? Hold on a minute. How do I live in light of something I've never seen? How do I live in light of something I've never experienced? I mean, for the examples that I've... Many of you have not been to my home. Some of you have, but many of you have not. But you've seen a home. You've seen a car. You've seen a Kroger. First illustration is not the hardest thing for you to picture. The concept of getting from one place to another is not... 
beyond us. Most of us, I would venture to say, have seen a fossil, perhaps even held one or seen one in a museum or in a book or on a website. And just about all of us have played both football and football. Ecclesiastes as a whole, and particularly our text today, tells us to look at this life in light of the next life. We're actually told to look at the things we know in light of the things we don't know. The title of the sermon is How to Live in Light of What You Don't Know, which brings us to our first point. Point number one, you need to be truly content with just not knowing. You need to be truly content with just not knowing. So much of our lives are uncertain. And, and those uncertainties in and of themselves are not without purpose. God has decided and decreed that we know what we know and that we not know what we don't know. You know that, right? I mean, it's easy to say we don't know everything. Like, everybody knows that. Or we're finite human beings who are significantly limited in what we can know and understand. That's true. Most people wouldn't argue that. But what I'm proposing to you is this. That what we don't know is not just because we are limited. What we don't know is not just because we are finite. No, we don't know... What we don't know because God has a purpose behind us not knowing what we don't know. Ours is, you might say, a God-ordained ignorance or a God-informed ignorance. Uh, We don't know what we don't know because God has a purpose in us actually not knowing that. The uncertainties of life are meant to have a significant impact on that which we are certain about. And only when we realize that there are certain things we'll simply never know. And once we realize we should stop going to great lengths to try to break the code or to try to know them, once we're truly content in just not knowing, then and only then can what we don't know impact the things that we do know. And that will only happen not just by not knowing, but by being truly content with what we know and what we don't know. There are tons of things we don't know, but I want to look at three of them today that we see in our text. And so in your outline, I've listed three things we just don't know. Letter A, the first one, you don't know what the future holds. You don't know what the future holds. Take a look at Ecclesiastes 11, uh, verse 2, specifically the latter part of verse 2. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. You know not what disaster may happen on earth. Look at verse 3 also. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. Like rain doesn't surprise us, right? Rain doesn't surprise us. We expect it to rain. We expect water to fall from the sky. And although rain doesn't surprise us, floods tend to catch us off guard. Right, such as what took place in southeastern Kentucky last year. Uh, rain may not surprise us, but floods often do. You know not what disaster may happen on earth. Uh, we know fire exists. Fire doesn't surprise us. But knowing how fire has torn through Maui leaves us staring at images on the news in shock and dismay. Verse 2, again, you know not what disaster may happen on earth. And it's not only natural disasters, it's just the circumstances in which we find ourselves sometimes. Uh, I've told this story at least twice, but it's been several years, so allow me to tell it again. 
one of the most uh, perfect, just picture-perfect memories I have with my wife, Sarah, was when we were dating a little under a month, and we were driving back from my father's house, which is in New Jersey. We were living in New York City at the time. Excuse me. I was living in New York City. She was living out on Long Island. And we were driving back from my dad's house, and, my, and Sarah said, you know, I've never actually seen the Statue of Liberty. And so I'm like, oh, <laughs> I can show you the Statue of Liberty. And so we drive through Staten Island. We get on the Staten Island Ferry. We pay a few dollars to take our car, or my car, on the ferry. And then we take the ferry, which, by the way, this is the best way to see the Statue of Liberty if you don't want to spend the whole day at the statue. I don't think you want to spend the whole day at the statue. It's to take the Staten Island Ferry. It's actually free if you don't have a car. They don't allow cars anymore. But anyway, we get on the Staten Island Ferry. We ride it across New York Harbor. We look at the Statue of Liberty. We take zero pictures because this is pre-camera phone. And then we get to the lower side of Manhattan, and we uh, park the car. We walk all over the place, just walking and talking. I specifically remember exactly what Sarah was wearing that day. I specifically remember the weather being just absolutely perfect with a clear sky, not a cloud around for miles. I specifically remember being able to see uh, stars in New York City, which is rare. It was a beautiful, beautiful day. We went to the South Street Seaport. We sat there on lounge chairs and faced the harbor and the Brooklyn Bridge, and we just started talking, and we were laughing. We have an inside joke to this day from that date. It was phenomenal. We walked around what was the World Trade Center at that time. We stood at the bottom and looked straight up, which you could do is one of the fun things to do because of the way the building was constructed and because of those just long lines of steel that went up the side around the perimeter. You could just look up and it looked like it never, ever ended as it reached almost a quarter mile into the sky. Then we walked down to the tip of Manhattan, the very, very end from where we actually came, which is near where I parked the car, and we were just standing there watching the water roll in because it's tidal. It's a harbor that leads out to the, uh, to the ocean and watching the, the waves splash up against uh, the dock at that time. And Sarah asked me this random question just out of the blue. She says, do you ever think that the United States would, would have a catastrophe such that, it would seem, such that we would be attacked? To which I immediately said, what? No. Said, no, no, no. I said, I, we'll, we'll be... We'll be part of conflicts, we'll, we'll go to war, but no, I don't think that'll ever happen. And I started spouting off about things that I really didn't know about. I was like, we have stuff in the ocean that shoots up things. It's just like, if anybody wanted to come over, we got, there's buttons and all sorts of, all the things. And then we moved on and talked about something else, and I dropped her off. on September 10th, 2001. Needless to say, when we woke up on September 11th, I was corrected. You don't know the future. You don't know what disaster may come upon you, whether it's a a natural disaster or a disaster of somebody's doing as a result of their evil mind and heart. We all understand the concept that we don't know the future. Right? Nobody here would be like, I, I kind of do actually. We all, understand, we all understand that we don't know the future, but we tend to function as if we do. 
When Sarah asked me that question, she's just making light conversation. <laughs> it wasn't too light, but it seemed light at the time. I'm like, no, no, that would, I don't think that would happen. Like, I don't know the future, so we're here I'm just spouting off like, no, that would never happen. But, so that's what I mean. We function as if we do know the future, right? Like, we don't, but we kind of do is how we tend to think. We make plans. We strategize. We have ideas and visions of things we want to come to uh, fruition. And we act accordingly. We plan accordingly. None of this is wrong or sinful. But has it ever occurred to you that you have absolutely no idea if it's going to happen? Like, no clue. Sarah and I are having some people over to our house for lunch this afternoon. We're going to eat pizza that we'll pick up on our way home from Noche's, which is in Edgewood on Barnwood Drive, which you should try. It's not a grandiose plan. We're going to order it before we leave church. We're going to pick it up on the way home. We haven't even placed the order yet, but we will before we leave church. That's it. Nothing, nothing to it. I have no idea if that's actually going to happen. No clue. You need to be truly content with just not knowing, and we just don't know what the future holds. Not, we don't know what the distant future holds, but I don't know if I'll finish this sermon. I'm planning to, but I don't know, and you don't know. We just don't know. Uh, three things we just don't know. Letter B, you don't know how to do what only God can do. You don't know how to do what only God can do. Uh, one time I was driving uh, from here, from northern Kentucky to Chicago. And so I was driving up I-65. And if you're familiar with that drive at all, you know that there's a certain part. It's north of Lafayette. I don't know exactly where it is where you drive through what is known as a wind farm. Uh, where there are windmills just for miles and miles and miles and miles. Everywhere you look, you just see spinning windmills just for miles and miles and miles, which kind of creeps me out. I don't know why. It's just weird. Actually, I do know why. It's from a really poorly made movie called Mac and Me from back in the late 80s that didn't really do well. But it's still, I still see aliens walking through. It's a, it's a whole thing. But anyway, it flips me out whenever I see just all of these windmills for miles and miles and miles. Um, the boys were little at the time, and they asked me uh, what, that, what that was. And so I don't know why, but just, I just decided to mess with them. And I'm like, well, that's what moves the earth. <laughs> like, this is the hub. This is the engine. It's, it's, all, it's all with propellers. It's the only way we make it around the sun. Then you get really nervous when you see a windmill not moving. Like, are we going to spin out of control? I didn't let it last long, and I was like, guys, I'm just kidding. That's not what that is. It, those are windmills or wind turbines. They spin and they create energy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I know how the wind farm works. But I don't know where the wind comes from. I don't know where it will go. Neither do they. I don't know how the wind was made. I don't know how to do what only God can do. Look at Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 5. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, 
So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. We know a lot about babies in utero. A lot. We as in people, I don't, but we know a lot about babies in utero. The only time I ever had a 3D ultrasound of one of my kids, I have four kids, was actually with my first. Our insurance covered it at the time, and we saw a 3D ultrasound picture of Justin while in the womb. And he was born looking a lot less sepia, but the actual picture that I saw on that printout, that was my son. I mean, you could hold it next to him and be like, oh yeah, that's, that has a frightening amount of accuracy. I mean, it was amazing. It was glorious. You could see his, his high cheekbones and his little nose. And, and I mean, it just looked exactly, it was him. We know a lot about babies in utero. But do we really know exactly, specifically, how cells divide at the right time and in the right way so that this part is an ear and that part is a toe and this part is a finger? We know it happens. But that's about it. Uh, We don't know how to do what only God can do. We don't know how he does it and we don't know how to do it ourselves. The book of Job is filled with these reminders as God speaks to Job. I put a few verses in your outline from Job chapter 38 where God says, Hey, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Where is the way to the dwelling of light? Where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? Can you send forth lightnings that... They may go and say to you, here we are. They're all rhetorical questions. But if Job were to answer, he would obviously say, I don't know. No, I don't know. I don't know how those things happen. And God would say, right, see, see, I do know. I know exactly how these things work. You don't know. I know all of these things. And so we can take comfort and be content in not knowing because it's not that these things aren't known at all. They're just not known by us. But since they are known by God, we can be content in not knowing. Because they're not unknown to absolutely everyone. They're just unknown to us. Three things you just don't know. Letter C. You don't know how to guarantee success and avoid failure. Take a look at verse 6 in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. We want what we do to go well. Right? Like nobody aims at failure. We all want what we do to Go well. Whatever you're doing, you want it to go well. Whether it's a, 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 a personal project, a hobby, a job, your drive home. You want it to go well. And so we do our best and we try our hardest. But we don't know if we'll hit the mark. Sometimes we act as if we do. How'd the interview go? I think I got it in the bag. That's, that's the person saying, based on how the interview went, I'm pretty sure I'm getting the job. But, but, but they don't know that. They don't know that. They're surmising that. 
We do our best, we try our hardest, but we don't know if we'll hit the mark. We don't know if we'll really see the target and hit the target. Some people do the right thing and are on the right track for a promising career path, but there were a a few factors that they didn't know because they couldn't know, and maybe they're uh, without a job before they even get going. We just don't know. I recently read that the number of people who have work in their field of study is 46%. Why is that? Well, in some way, that reveals that we as a people just don't know. Didn't know we'd lose interest in the work. Didn't know we'd find a job in a different field that we liked more or were more successful or had the opportunity to be more lucrative. We just don't know. The preacher in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, raises these points not to make us feel like an idiot, but to encourage you to be content with this God-informed Ignorance, the things God has seen fit to just not reveal to you and me. Not because he gets a kick out of keeping you in the dark, but because he believes, no, he knows your life and his glory will both be greater as a result of just not knowing. And you know what? If you can be content with not knowing what God doesn't want you to know, that perspective has the potential to have a great impact on what you do know, which brings us to point number two. Not knowing the future means you should loosen your grip on your life and your stuff. Not knowing the future means you should loosen your grip on your life and your stuff. Let's look at the first two verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 11 again. Cast your bread upon the waters. Uh, the word cast in, in verse 1, literally in the Hebrew, it's, it's send out or cast away. It doesn't call to mind a careful portioning of giving away what one has. It's, it's, I mean, even I went fishing with my... Don't, yes, I actually did. I went fishing with my son while we were on vacation. And when we cast... We weren't like aiming as we... Ca- There's a body of water in front of us. And when we cast, we just launched... The thing, the bait, the weight, what is it? The lure? We launched it into the water. We just, whew, that's the kind of casting that, that God is painting a picture for us here today. It's not just a, a careful putting out. It's a, it's a radical casting, a radical giving. It's radical generosity. Verse 2 says, give a portion to seven or even to eight. Seven is typically in, in the Bible, a number of, of, of perfection, a number of wholeness, which is why Solomon says, give to seven, then what? Even to eight, where people reading would be like, whoa, beyond what we need to. Whoa, eight is beyond seven. Seven is perfect. What is eight? Whoa. In other words, give beyond what you need to give. We might say, give to the nth degree. Give generously. Give radically generously. Why? Look at the end of verse two. For you know not know what disaster may happen on earth. Now, this is somewhat poetic wisdom literature, right? I don't think the intention is to talk solely about money or commerce, but rather a principle that we can apply to life in general, and that is this. Because the future is uncertain, there is risk involved in everything we do. But the risk isn't meant to paralyze you. It's actually meant... To do the exact opposite, to free you to do what you do generously. Do you see that? Since since you don't know when disaster will happen, verse 2, live generously while you can because you won't always be able to do so. 
The risk is not meant to cause you to, to shrink back. The risk is meant to, to say, wow, life is short. I need to get, I want to do this now. I want to live uh, today as fully as I can. I want to be as generous as I can with my life, with my goods, with my money, with my time. Because I don't know when disaster will happen. You might recall a parable from Luke chapter 12. Beginning in verse 16, it says this, And he, Jesus, told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have made ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool! This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. One of the greatest mistakes, one of the greatest mistakes you can make in this life is to think about life, wealth, ministry, relationships, possessions, anything as if you can predict the future. What's the point of your wealth if disaster strikes and takes it away from you? Since the future is uncertain, hold your possessions loosely. It is smart to save, but money is meant to be used for good. What if you don't live to be 80? Since the future is uncertain, be responsible with your money. Be a good steward of your money, but don't be stuck with your money. Enjoy it while you can. Give it away while you can. Hold it loosely while you have life and breath and strength to hold it at all. Friends, this type of wisdom is unique to the word of God. You, you, you know that, right? I mean, any financial advisor will tell you to have the long view when it comes to your investments. Any wise human will tell you since the future is uncertain, it's probably best to diversify to some degree instead of having all your eggs in one basket. But only the word of God in our text today says, take the best of what you have and the best of what you are and give them away because life is short. That's unique to the word of God. You say, how do I know if I'm, I mean, I, I think, how do I know if I'm doing that? You'll know you're doing it if it costs. You'll know you're doing it if it costs. You'll know you're doing it if you're doing your taxes and you see how much you gave away and you realize what you could have done with that money had you not given it away. And you know there are things that you said no to that you wish you could have said yes to, but you chose to say yes to generosity instead. You'll know you're doing it if it costs. You'll know you're doing it if you're looking back on your week and you're wiped, you're tired, and you know you could have been resting at home more, but you go to a community group instead, or you sat with someone who was hurting instead, or you just sat with someone and enjoyed each other's company instead. And so you're tired, but it's a good tired. You'll know you're doing it if it costs. You might be dead this time tomorrow. If that happens, what would you wish you could have done with your time? What will you wish you could have done with your money, with your home, with your relationships, your influence, your, your gifts? What will you wish you could have done with your life? 
Not knowing the future helps you loosen your grip on life and stuff. It helps us live life and gives us reason to live life to the fullest. Which brings us to point number three. You need to know that success or failure won't matter if you fail to live in the first place. Success or failure won't matter if you fail to live in the first place. Look at Ecclesiastes 11 verse 6. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Again, like I said before, nobody aims for failure. It's good to succeed, but there are better things in life than succeeding, and there are worse things in life than failing. Do you know what's worse than failing? Not living. Uh, Not living. And by not living, I mean not trying. God isn't against bucket lists. Do you know that? God isn't against bucket lists. To have a list of things that you want to do with the life that God has given you, that you hope to accomplish, that you hope to enjoy during your time on earth. God isn't against bucket lists. He's not. I mean, any desire in our life that becomes a demand, that becomes an idol in our life, is something gonna be, that's going to be something we lust after. That's not good. When your desire becomes a demand, that's not good. When We talk about that a lot, right? When your good thing becomes a God thing, that's not good. It seeks to dethrone God from the throne of your heart. That's not good. But having a bucket list, a list of things you hope to do in this life that God has given you, on this planet that God has placed you, that's not a bad thing. God's not against bucket lists. But you know what's sad? It's sad when some people won't have a bucket list because they see their bucket list as a to-do list. And if they make a list, they might succeed at some, but they might fail at others. And so if they don't even try, they've neither succeeded nor failed. Does does, does that make sense? Like if, if if I don't admit to wanting to do that, then I can't say that I failed. But you know what? It brings about very little comfort to the person who never tried for fear of failing. At least I didn't fail doesn't bring comfort for a long time. It quickly gets replaced by, I can't believe I never even tried. Some people have such a fear of failure or even just disappointment that they end up trying little to nothing at all. They end up not making a decision at all. Let me tell you something. Indecision is a decision. Indecision is a decision. The decision to do nothing oftentimes has a greater impact on people's lives than they realize. Indecision is a decision. Take a look at verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. The farmer who steps outside and says, it's, I'm not going to sow seed today. It's, it's, it's too windy. It'll be less windy tomorrow. Steps outside again and goes... The wind just changed directions. I can't even remember. This might be more windy than it was yesterday. I'll wait till tomorrow. Steps outside again. The next, you know, steps outside later that day and the wind is, it's less, but it's still there. If I sow the seed, it might blow. I'm not going to, I shouldn't even try. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. I should go and take what the Lord has given me from my guard, but oh my, it's going to rain. I, or could rain. That's a cloud. I shouldn't. I'll wait till the next day. I'll wait till the next day. I'll wait till later. I'll wait till later. I'll wait till later. What if it rains? What if it rains? What if it rains? 
He who regards the clouds will not reap. Some people have such a fixation, not not a fear of failure, but the other side of the coin is a fixation on success that they become like myopic about life, only focusing on one thing and one thing only. It's a person who is all about the job. If the job is going well, they're happy. If they miss a promotion, they're devastated. A good quarter at work means a good quarter of life. And it doesn't need to be limited to careers or money. People go through this in parenting. If parenting is going well, God has been smiling upon them. If parenting has been fruitful, then they have been fruitful. But when parenting is hard or seemingly fruitless, joy is gone. Or even worse, when the kids are grown and gone, they don't know what to do with themselves because their season of life as parenting children in the home is is done. They don't know. Why? Because for so long they've put all their eggs in one basket. They've decided if God is happy with them, it will be shown in the fruit of their parenting or or the fruit of their labors at work or anything. You fill in the blank. They're essentially looking at God and saying, I will only acknowledge and appreciate your grace if it's given to me through this one pipe called, and then you put a label on that pipe, success at work, success at home, uh, success in my finances, success in my relationships. And other things can be going well, but I care about this thing. And so if I'm not fruitful here, I'm not happy. Verse 6, in the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Friends, we've got to diversify, and that's not just investment advice. We've got to diversify in where we even receive joy from. Instead of looking at God and saying, I'll be, yeah, it's great. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty day, and my, my family is, is, is relatively healthy, and um, I'm doing okay at work. But I have this one investment, and I will only be happy if this one investment produces, produces fruit. I have a job. I'm gainfully employed. I'm grateful for that. I love my church family. I'm, I'm grateful for that. But I really want my children to succeed in life and to be unbelievably wealthy such that they don't have to worry about finances. If that doesn't happen, I will not be happy. It doesn't matter if I'm happy in these, whatever. It's just this one thing. I'm so, it's like you picture a farmer, like I'm going to sow all my seed right here. Well, why don't you sow it also? I want it to grow here. Why don't you go more broad and see where God might grow? Because I want it here. It'll be perfect if it grows here. I want fruit here. Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also what? Reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Friends, since you can't guarantee success 100% of the time really any of the time, and since you can't avoid failure 100% of the time, plant seeds all over the place so that if there's no growth here, there might be growth there. Diversify your enjoyment in this life that God has given you so that if parenting is rough, you might take joy in fruitfulness at work. If work is the pits, you might take joy in the conversation you have with a neighbor or time spent with a friend or nicely mowed grass where the lines look good. Diversify your joy so that you can receive it whatever way God sends it. 
The poet E.E. E. Cummings once said that being undead isn't being alive. Being undead isn't being alive. Ecclesiastes tells us that a life that depends only on success for joy or only on avoidance of failure for happiness and leaves no room for anything unpredictable, that person might be undead but isn't really alive. They're not really living life. Success or failure won't matter if you fail to live in the first place. What about you? Do you shelter yourself from the fear of failure by only doing what you see as predictable? How might God be calling you to change that? And finally, point number four. You need to know that the reward for a life lived well is not found where we often assume it is. Luke 9, verse 24 in your outline says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. These words, friends, spoken by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself, are certainly true. Embracing personal pleasure and gain instead of embracing Christ is always a losing proposition. If you gain the whole world and lose your soul, you have lost. No question, full stop. Nobody is in hell saying, at least I partied hard when I had the chance. Nobody. However, There's also nobody in heaven saying, I'm only here because I never enjoyed my earthly life. I'm only here because I I never enjoyed the time that God gave me on earth. Turn in your copy of the scriptures to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. This isn't in your outline, but I want you to see it in your own copy of the scriptures. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. These, of course, are the Apostle Paul's words to uh, Timothy. Pick it up in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, who is he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now look at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 
They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So you see verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, here's what Paul says we've got to do. Hey, don't be haughty. Don't be arrogant. Don't go around like strutting your stuff. Don't be haughty. Don't set your hopes on riches because riches are uncertain. Set your hope on God. Who does what? Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It all comes from the Lord. All the things that we've spoken about, the times that Pastor Brad has spoken about sitting in his patio in an inflatable pool. It's a bizarre picture, but still, I mean, it, it, what, what you realize is that every little thing, every good and perfect gift comes from who? God. And so he does that as an act of, of, of worship. Look at how good God is. When you step outside the house and it's not humid, you're like, wow, feels great today. Look at what God did. When you enjoy a good, Sarah made a meal recently that I told her, I was like, this, is, this might be literally top five of all the meals you've ever made. That's a great gift from God. That's not like, oh, that's just a silly thing. Verse 17, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so what about you? In light of what you don't know, in light of you not knowing what tomorrow will bring, not knowing the number of days you have to live, not knowing really anything beyond what you're experiencing right now, how is God calling you to live, to enjoy, to worship him with your life? Only when we do that, only when we become content with what we don't know, can we really enjoy the things that we have, that we hold, and that we do know for as long as God gives us breath. Father in heaven, these are confusing things. Lord, would you bring clarity to our minds and our hearts about what you would have us do with the days that you have given us, what you would have us do with the relationships and influence that you have given us, what you would have us do with uh, the time, the talents, the skills, the abilities that we have so that we might live life to the fullest for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.